Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone. This is Johnny Tan, author of From My Mama's Kitchen, Food for the Soul, Recipes for Living. Welcome to my weekly From My Mama's Kitchen talk radio show. My guest for this morning is Corey D. James. He is the founder and CEO of Painting Pictures, a nonprofit organization dedicated to making an impact in the lives of disadvantaged youth. Corey and I will be discussing touching stories of reshaping the lives of young men and women, empowering them to seek brighter futures from his new book, Reframing the World of Inner City Youth. Good morning, Corey. Welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. How are you doing this morning, sir? Good morning. I'm excellent. How are you, sir? Fantastic. It is a pleasure to have you on the air with me. Painting pictures is a very insightful read. Thank you for sharing the world of urban life that few of us truly understand. So congratulations for that. Oh, do appreciate it. Thank you. Let us start by getting to know you a little better. Please give us a quick walkthrough of your life from childhood to the present moment. Absolutely. Well, uh, my childhood was very much sheltered. I grew up with my my grandmother, my great aunt, my godmother, so I had a lot of motherly figures. Um, never really had a male role model or male father figure in my life. So with that being said, my life was very, very simple, very um, sheltered, like I said, and I didn't have a mm-hmm. whole lot of extracurricular activities like sports and things of that nature because they wouldn't allow me to do much of that. So um so my life was very much of a very um regular simple life. And then I grow up and I end up going to a Christian college because my pursuit was really to do ministry to be um a thriving pastor of a church. So I eventually went to a Christian college in upstate Pennsylvania and spent um much mm-hmm. of my time there doing an undergraduate and a graduate degree actually in organizational leadership. Then I come out of that and I'm looking for a job, as everyone out of college does, and I find a job in South Jersey in the Atlantic City area doing work that um, is working with adults that are having financial difficulties. And I found out in that situation that this was not the job for me. I hated the job miserably, and I found myself almost every day looking for employment opportunities. Make a long story short, um, within this organization, there was a juvenile justice department And my supervisor thought because I was young that I would do very well in this capacity. And I definitely didn't think um, the same. So I was very apprehensive, and I decided not to take this opportunity in the beginning. But um, she was very persistent, and she believed that I would do well. So she continued to um, try to persuade me to do this. And eventually I took the job, and um, I took the job just with the mindset that I would do this for a little while. And it eventually became um, part of my life, and that's what I've been doing ever since because I realized that this was my niche, that this was my passion and that this was the calling and the purpose I was born on this earth for. And ever since then, I've been working with inner city urban youth. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Now, you grew up, I know you dedicated the book to three wonderful ladies in your life and that you, like you mentioned, you were somewhat sheltered and so forth from a lot of things. But there were a period of time in your life that you kind of felt that you were 
having low self-esteem from a standpoint of really searching for something special. So when did you realize you have to kind of change yourself personally? Yeah, I mean, so no, absolutely, um, because I I didn't grow up with the traditional family, so it did leave me with something very much missing in my life. I always had the desire to have a traditional family with a mother or a father and those traditional elements, so I did go through a mode of depression and even suicidal thoughts because there was definitely something lacking in my life. And so as I went through um, that long period of time, I really didn't know my purpose. I really didn't know my calling. And it just took years of trying to figure it out, going away to college, that really helped me understand that I did have a purpose, that my life was actually just really preparing me so that I could prepare and equip young people. Because I believe that if I didn't have the childhood that I did have, I would not have been able to now give back and understand these young people because in reality I don't have the past or the experiences that they have but what I do have that is similar to them is feeling unloved feeling disconnected not feeling like I have much of a purpose and a very negative future orientation as many of our young people in the streets have it was because of a different reason but for that same reason I can actually relate and understand where they are I understand when you were growing up who were some of the people you look up to? Absolutely. I mean, I honestly looked up to those that raised me, which would be my grandmother, mm-hmm. my, my great aunt, my godmother, because they really gave so much of themselves to me. And I realized that they didn't have to because, you know, for my grandmother, she was raising another generation that she didn't have to. And then my great aunt just came into the picture, and she was just vitally a role model for me. I saw so many situations that she had gone through. She had very um, very much of a lot of physical illnesses. She had a lot of grief that she was dealing with, but she was always persevering. She was always determined, and she never gave up. And that really taught me how not to give up, how to be perseverance in life and not to allow situations to dictate my future. And then my godmother was also that, that person that was extremely influential. She taught me about how to also persevere. Like as I was a, maybe a young teenager, I saw her go back to school and graduate um, when she didn't have to do that. But that was an example for me that it's never too late. And no matter where you come from, your dreams are valid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you pretty much have wonderful people that surrounded you may not necessarily were firsthand in terms of like coaching and mentoring you for like a better term every day, you know, to be that sort of a driver, but they were excellent role models for you to sort of take a look at and say, well, there are options here. And at what point do you discover that exit strategy for yourself? I don't know if I ever really discovered it. I feel like it just happened. I believe mm-hmm. that I I moved on. I went to high school. I went to college. In college, I met some people, and I saw a different culture. I saw a different environment, and my taste buds immediately became altered to realize that there was something more to mm-hmm. life. Because while mm-hmm. I had these wonderful examples before me, I was honestly never really pushed to go to college because many of them had not 
gone to college. I was never pushed to to really do much, um, you know, as far as become mm-hmm. anything beyond what they had done or beyond my environment because they didn't mm-hmm. have that exposure themselves. So college really mm-hmm. gave me the exposure to really want more for my life. And then even after college and just kind of always wanting to, because of my low self-esteem, because of my depression, I always had a desire to please people. So with that in mind, while that was a very negative way of thinking, it did give me the drive and the motivation to become better. Did you ever have a mentor? I'm sorry, a mentor. Did I ever have a mentor? I would say indirectly, yes. I never had an official mentor where we had, Mm -hmm. you know, mentorship Mm -hmm. moments and we had a a distinguished time that we would meet. However, there were people that I looked up to from a distance. There were people, um, men within my church that would take me to different events, that would take me to different conferences. And I wish I would have known what a mentor really was then, so I could have mm-hmm, capitalized mm-hmm. on it even more. But um, now mm-hmm. that I know, I can really help other young people and be a mentor to them. Sure. Well, basically, as a young man, you were looking at all these individuals and perhaps would like to emulate their success or their way of living and their perspective about life, I presume. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no, I definitely saw things that I liked. I saw things that I hated. And so Mm -hmm. I tried to definitely flee from those things that did not look really, really great in my eyes and then Mm -hmm. really start Mm -hmm. trying to become those things that that looked good, that looked positive. Very interesting. What life epiphanies led you to become passionate about helping others? I really don't always know how I came into this field. I just feel like it was destiny, and it it just met me where I was. So I can't say I had a a moment where it was like, I need to do this. But I do know there there was a moment when I was already in it, and it was a Martin Luther King service, and I was at an (laughs) event in Atlantic County, and there was a spokesperson, and he had spoke about a scripture. He was speaking about a scripture in the book of Nehemiah and how Nehemiah saw his people, and he saw the tragedy that they were going through, the destruction of the land. And while he was in a better situation than they, he decided that I was going to go and help my people because he felt the heart, he felt the call, he felt the passion to do so. And I will say on that day when I heard that message, I was literally crying and weeping because I felt that same call because I, like mm-hmm. Nehemiah, was in, in a better place now. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have the situations that our inner city young people were dealing with, but I just felt the need. I felt the call to go and pursue uh, mm-hmm. a calling that wasn't necessarily part of my lifestyle, and that's when I think it became even more real, even though I was already doing it. Mm-hmm. Very, very interesting. At any point, do you feel like instead of working with inner city youth, there was something else out there that you can do? Because you do have an impressive credential. So you obviously chose, there's no right or wrong in life decision. It's just a matter of a conscious decision that one makes. So why inner city youth? Why? I I still ask myself that question because I really <laughs> I really don't know why. 
I don't know why um, I came to this field. I don't know how I got to this field many days. It just happened. I Yeah, you're right. I could have chosen anything else. I I was interested in, you know, corporate America at one point, definitely pastoral ministry. I was interested mm-hmm. in event coordinating. I, I thought about being a chef. I thought about so many different fields that I could be in. And somehow this was the only field that strangely meshed with my life. And it's an ongoing passion, and every day it just becomes stronger. And I can't honestly imagine myself doing anything outside of this. Very interesting. How much of an impact does environment play in one's life? Oh, man, uh, your environment is the, the the factor of your destiny, literally. So we either have a positive outcome or a negative outcome based upon what we see in our environment. We know that we sound like the people that we're around. We dress like them. We do things like them, and we don't even realize it until it comes out of our, our comes out of our mouth or our body language conveys something, and then we realize, oh, I'm acting just like mom or I'm acting just like dad because that's how much our environment impacts us. So our young people, unfortunately, they're in some, some very bad situations. And that's what I really talk about in the book, the trauma, the tragedy that our young people never ask for, but they're born into this environment that has very much changed the trajectory of their lives because their environments dictate their decisions, their thoughts. I mean, when you start talking to these young people and you hear the way they think, how they have such a negative future orientation and it's okay to die at 16 or it's okay to be a victim to gun violence or it's okay Mm -hmm. to be incarcerated, that's when you know they have a bad future orientation and it's only because of their environment. If they were raised in an environment that spoke other things, they would then think like that. But because the environment speaks negativity and it doesn't speak positivity, that's how they think. Very interesting. I know that environment, somewhere along the line, contributes close to about 70% of our total makeup as we were growing up because, like you said, we absorb everything that's around us. How does your organization, Painting Pictures, help these young men and women? And before you answer that question, what is the inspiration behind the name itself, Painting Pictures? Yeah. So Painting Pictures is just that. It's about painting a new picture for our young people because many of our young people are replicating the pictures of their environment. So they become what they see. They do what they see. And my mission, my vision is to help them know that there is an alternative to what they believe is a dead end, to what they believe is a trap. So I want to paint better pictures for them, show them that they don't have to do or succumb to their environment, but they can actually have a positive, a very prosperous and successful future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Is there a common core challenge facing all the youths? I'm sorry, is there a common core Yeah, so I mean, I would say that the Common Core Challenge is their environment, Uh, because when I realize this and I talk to young people, I, I ask them, what is their greatest challenge? 
And they will typically say it's my environment because while there are numerous youth programs and organizations that are seeking to help our young people, they have to go back to their environment, and that's when it becomes tough. There was a situation um, just a few years ago with a young man, and I write about this in the book, and he's a phenomenal, phenomenal kid, and he is in and out of detention centers because of bad situations, bad decisions. And what happens is he now is in court, and I'm with him to advocate for him. And he's really on his last leg with the judge, and the judge is ready to throw the book at him, to send him out of district to another location to detain him. And now this young man has a kid, and so it's very important for him to be in the kid's life. So he's there, and he's beginning to weep and asking the judge for another chance to give him another opportunity because he believes that he can fix it. He wants to be different. He has a desire to be better. And so the judge gives him a chance, and I advocate for him because I believe in this young person. I believe in every young person. And what eventually happens is maybe a week or two later, this young man hits me. Um, he calls me in the middle of the night, and he says, I know what I said to the judge. I know how I said I want to do better things. I know how I said that I promise that I'll make better decisions. He says, it's hard. I am in a bad predicament at home. I don't have food. I don't have clothing. My kid doesn't have food. My kid doesn't have clothing, and I'm just stuck in a jam. And so the best solution for me is to do what I used to do, which is illegal. And I talked him out of it, and I, I encouraged him to be strong. I reached out to him, and I took him some groceries. I went and got some food and some um, some clothing for the kid, and I helped him find a job. And he eventually started this job at UPS, and that, that was good good for a little bit. But then a couple of weeks later, he calls me again and says, it's hard. You know, my environment dictates to me that it's more money to sell drugs and it was more prosperous to do so. And it's a lot less work. And so eventually we go back and forth and he's encouraged and he goes back and continues to work. But then just a few days later, I get a call that he's detained again. And this is because the environment continues to influence our young people. And it's hard to get that mindset out of them because it took years for our young people to become destructive, to become defiant, to, to gain this kind of mindset. And it's going to take years of encouragement, motivation, inspiration, and exposure to help them become what they are not familiar with, and that's positivity. What you mentioned is no doubt true, but at the same time, one would say he's not taking ownership of his responsibility mm-hmm. and that the situation was broken not by him, giving him the benefit of the doubt that obviously he grew up in an environment, a situation, and so forth. There are people around him, family. So who is taking ownership? Because so unfortunately, we are the product I don't think, of what... Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah I don't think so we realize that our kids are are doing what they know. And many times they don't have the family that you speak of because mm-hmm. oftentimes I meet the family of these young men and young ladies and realize that their parents and whoever is raising them sometimes is worse off than them. And then you realize mm-hmm. that, oh, they're not so bad themselves because this is what they have been exposed to. 
So many mm-hmm. times they are only becoming what they have seen. So it's not that they're not um, taking responsibility for their lives. They don't know how. They haven't been taught how. And then the youth mm-hmm. organizations that many times will come into their lives and the juvenile justice system, what do we teach them? Sometimes we just teach them um, a punitive discipline and we're not providing intervention. And that's what I really mm-hmm. talk about in the book, that we are constantly yeah. expelling our kids, we're suspending them, we're yelling at them, we're beating them. But what are we doing to help them understand that they can become better? Because all of those methods that I just named are not mm-hmm. creating a better positive future orientation for our kids. Mm-hmm. One of the things I like about the way you constructed the book is the fact that it is a keepsake. Uh, there are places where you can write notes. I love the call-outs, the inspirational words. And one particularly words that got to me, and this is based on exactly what we were just talking about, is on page 31 where it says, low expectations result in low-level intervention. Yeah, And how true that is in terms of we as, say, the general public look at this. But at the same time, I don't fault the general public in a way because I understand because based on what you just told me, sometimes as you, you met this child, this person, this guy, whether it's a man or a woman, and you thought obviously basically say through social standards he's below par, he's having or she's having all kinds of problems. And then when you met where he or she came from, He's actually, or she's actually, even though they're dealing in drugs and or some other thing, illegal, from that perspective, it's a step up from where they came from. Yeah. And that's a tough, tough situation to to look at and and champion, I guess, in some ways. But I understand where you're coming from. Uh, so, in, again, those are the things I'm reading in the book and I'm getting that, and, and I understand where you're clearly coming from. So, at the same time, what we have here, are there a lot of misconceptions people are having about disadvantaged youth? Yeah, absolutely. They're having the misconception, first of all, that these young people don't want to be better. And so there's a chapter in the book called Life is Like a Game of Spades. And that Mm -hmm. chapter is really discussing the game of spades and how aggressive it is and how, how very much competitive it is. And that's very much of how life is. Life is very aggressive and competitive. And our young people have not been given some of the opportunities that another young person has in the suburban area. So with that in Mm -hmm. mind, now they're at the table, and because they want what the kid has in the suburban area, they begin to become Mm -hmm. aggressive. They begin to cheat. And I say this in the book, and um, and that Mm -hmm. is that no one cheats on a test that they don't want to pass. So for our young people, they're cheating in life, and they're they're cheating by by, by steal, stealing cars and by you know doing illegal behaviors, and it's only because they want to get ahead fast. They're not doing it because this is just what we do, but they are actually trying to be successful. You know, they're trying to have mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. they would determine as successful. So what it is is that we need to encourage and teach our young people that there is a partner across the table from them, and that would mm-hmm. be you and I. That would be youth programs. That would be organizations. That would be our community leaders that will not allow them to lose the game because they lose the game, we lose the game. Every time a young person dies, that also means that something was not done on our end, that we could not reach and we could not save and we could not 
do what we needed to do to make sure that this young person has a long and prosperous life. So really being the partner on the other side of the table, in the, like in the game of spades, and reminding them that I have your back. Even if you have a losing hand, I can help you win the game because we're in this together. So true. In the end, we all want to succeed. We have a oh, certain yeah. goal in mind we want to accomplish. So yeah. what they're looking at, they want to succeed as well. Yeah. But they may not necessarily realize what is uh, uh, the right way and, say, the improper way of doing things. But then again, legal or illegal in many ways sometimes is in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, everyone wants to succeed. Who wants to really lose? <laughs> you know, no one yeah. wants to, to lose a game, and it's very disappointing to lose a game. So you go into mm-hmm. another mode when, you're look, when you seem to look like you're losing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why did you decide to write Painting Pictures, the book? Yeah, I decided to write because I wanted to help others understand what's really going on in the lives of our young people because we often look at them as bad a lot of people have given up on our young people. I've been in so many meetings over the years, and we see them as lost causes sometimes. But I wanted to really inform and educate folk on the real tragedy that our young people are going through. And I look at it in the book as a soldier going off to war. A soldier going off to war, they see a lot of trauma. They see a lot of bloodshed. They hear bombs. They hear bullets. They hear so many negative things, and now that's in their head when they come home. And that's what's happening to our young people. They see all of this in the community, and that has traumatized them. And what do we do with a soldier returning to war? We provide intervention. We give them help. We give them counseling. But we're not doing that for our young people. They need help. They need counseling. They need motivation. They need someone to stick with them. So I wrote the book so that we could raise up a a troop that will actually help our young people become better to reframe their world, as I say. It's a noble cause, no doubt. Your book is very impressive. But don't you think that in addition to what you're doing, the core is actually the family side of the equation as well? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The family is huge. The family is very huge. And I think, you know, there are definitely some some organizations that are targeting the family, and, and that's important. Um, that's not my call at this point. But what I will say is that me impacting these young people will impact families to come because being mindful that these kids are going to have families, they're going to have children. And if we don't somehow stop the generational cycle now, their Mm -hmm. children will be just like them and their parents and their grandchildren. The cycle continues. So my job and and my calling is to, to better this world to come because they are definitely going to to have families and it's it's my responsibility I feel like to teach them how to expose and motivate their kids and teach them how to expose their kids because we only become what we were exposed to or what we were encouraged to do so if i encourage these kids i'm also encouraging you know the kids that they'll have and the kids that those kids will have so i'm exposing and i'm encouraging generations to come just by helping these young people. Right, certainly I understand that. In reading your book and in understanding your background and having gone through my own background in my life, and I brought up family, the reason is because somewhere along the line, somebody has to take ownership of the situation. 
And I knew I grew up in a family where my parents weren't educated. They grew up during the World War, World War II, that is, and not even in America. So the situation is much more acute. However, they have certain things in mind and certain standards. My dad only finished sixth grade and then had to work. My mom, when she's old enough, she was sent to Kitchen 101, like all the ladies at that time, because that's what you're supposed to do. You've got to learn how to cook. And in the course of growing up in that family, in the Tan family, my mom is the head of household. She may not know all the 26 alphabets, but she does know what A, B, C, D, and F stands for. She knows what red stands for as a spelling grade, and she knows what blue stands for as a pressing grade. So believe it or not, my sister and I can't get away with those kind of stuff. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we weren't who we are today without our parents or somebody in, in, in our lives. And you weren't where you're at today if it weren't for the three wonderful ladies you dedicated the book to. And quite possibly your grandmother, who who has been the pillar in your life. So my, uh, I guess my what I'm trying to say right here is that who is taking responsibility? You obviously can't take responsibility for the youth. And the youth are saying, well, environment causes me to do this. And then where is that cycle stop in terms of somebody's going to say, okay, how are we going to take care of this? Is the community stepping up to the plate to address this issue? Yeah, so no, that's a great point. And I think the community is where it falls because we mm-hmm. are responsible for the citizens of our community. So we are mm-hmm. our brother's keeper. We are our sister's keeper. Right. So I believe that as um, community members, we should ensure that our young people are getting the proper education. So, I mean, it starts in the community. It starts with our educational system. Our young people are not treated the same way that they are in the suburban. They're not having the same quality teachers. They're not having textbooks and the extracurricular activities that are necessary in order to develop a balanced and successful young person. So across the board from the community to the school to organizations to the church, there's a very much large neglect for these young people that I speak about in the book. So it's it's the community's responsibility. Mm-hmm. And so how is your work integrated into those community groups? So, yeah, what I have been doing ever since the book is I've been going in and doing professional development sessions mm-hmm. with school teachers, with administration, with organizations and churches, and I've been helping them understand because I think many times we we definitely blame the community, and I think they are to blame, but sometimes they don't always understand what's going on, what's really, mm-hmm. really going on because we're so concerned about politics and, and everything else that we shouldn't always be concerned about. So helping them mm-hmm. understand that if you don't help, this situation won't get fixed. So that's what I've been doing. I've been spreading the word, spreading the message that these young people need you. And although, and this is one of my favorite quotes, those kids that need the most love will show it in the most unloving ways. 
So even though that they even though they misbehave and they're delinquent and they're they're disruptive, they need you. And if you don't actually be that support system for them, they'll continue to be disruptive. They'll continue to be delinquent. And they'll continue to be unsuccessful because they need you to really change the trajectory of their lives. So true. In your book, in Chapter 5, you talk about missing ingredients. And obviously, yeah. we have Father's Day that just passed. Let's talk about that a little bit. Please share your yeah. thoughts. Yeah, no, absolutely. A father is huge in the life of a child. And what I talk about in the book is that a father is the person that gives the child their name. And I'm not talking about their 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 name that's on the birth certificate, but I'm talking about the affirmation that every young person needs. And we have a lot of young people, young boys in particular, they're taking pride in names that the street gives them. I know kids that call themselves savage and they call themselves hard body and hard head and all of these names are very negative. And what's happening, the OG on the streets are giving these young people their names because of something that they might have done. They might have gotten into many fights or they might have, um, you know, many drug deals or they might have been known on the streets for just uh, disruptive behavior. So they're giving names that actually matches what they do on the streets. And now they're taking pride mm -hmm. in that. And, and our young girls are taking pride in, in names that aren't princess and aren't beautiful as they are. Because the father mm -hmm. never told them how great they are, how awesome mm -hmm. and pretty they are. So they are listening to every um, person that is telling them whatever they say. They're taking that to heart. And I believe that without the father, without that, um, that, that missing ingredient, our kids are, are falling. And I use in the book this scenario that a cake needs oil. And if a cake mm -hmm. doesn't have oil, what happens to it? It falls. And that's what hap is happening to um, our society, to our community, because this is really a fatherless generation. Our kids are falling, and they're falling to destructive behaviors that they would never encounter if they would have had someone in their house, somewhere in their community, someone in their community that taught them the, the basics of life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So true. So true. The validation here, like you mentioned, it's not about your family name is carried up in perpetuation, but it's more about we all need to be what the the what human beings in the end needs is to be loved and to be wanted yeah and if an individual lacks that, they will seek it out aggressively, like you say, and whoever shall give them that will be their mentor. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I really talk about that in that same chapter, that mm -hmm. so because this is a fatherless generation, we can't necessarily go and find all of their fathers because some of the fathers right. just aren't fit, and we don't want to have an unfit father in their lives either. But That's what. Right. But but what we can do is one thing about a cake, a cake can use a substitute rather than oil. So there are substitutes right. that you can put into a cake that will still make it rise um, that is an oil. And that's what we can be as mentors, as advocates, as community members. We can be the substitute to oil in the cake and still ensure that our kids rise to successful places in life. So true, so true. 
Can you share with us some of the success stories from your work mentoring young men and women? Absolutely. Well, it's really it's really cool because I've been in this field now for over a decade. And so some mm-hmm. students I started with um when they were 13 or 15 and they're now they're they're 25 and and 23 and sometimes older. And so it's it's really cool to actually have seen them transition throughout the years. So some young people that I came into their lives 10, 12 years ago and they were they were in in a bad situation and I will say mm-hmm. that a lot of success stories are not overnight. You know, a lot of times we expect mm-hmm. something to happen within the first couple months or the first couple of um, days of working with a young person. I've had youth advocates come to me and say, hey, you know, I don't see anything happening in the life of this young person. And I'll say, how long have you been working with them? And they'll say, oh, well, it's right. been a couple months. Well, um, you're not going to see anything because it took a very long time for them to become this. So it's going to take a long time to take that away from them. So for me, me, the success story really lies in um, the longevity of where, I, um, where I've come from. So now I actually have the opportunity to see kids that I started with, like I said, at 15, now grown with family, have a, you know, a wife, have kids of their own, and now they're raising their kids with um, a, a different method. Literally, um, I had right. my book signing on um, May 1st. And um, a bunch of my kids came that I had worked with over the years, and it was so incredible. I was in tears. And and they literally spoke about my impact in their lives. And they talked about how because of me dealing with them throughout all these years and, you know, when they wanted to give up on themselves, when they weren't even responsive to me, when they would try to run away from me and, and, you know, ignore my phone calls, not answer the doorbell, when their parents (laughs) were calling me in the middle of the night, when all of this was happening and I continued to be persistent, they talked about because of my persistence, they are who they are. Are today, and in fact, one of their uh, wives actually gave me a card, and she says, "I thank you. I, I didn't meet you, you know, during that whole phase, but I thank you because the man I married is because of you." So those are success stories. That that's when it becomes real deal after you see it happen over the years, and you see a kid that was heading down a really really destructive path change their ways, change their behavior, and all of a sudden they become a good student, they head to college, they get married, they get a job, you know, they take care of their family. That's the success story. So true, so true. What was the greatest challenge you had encountered in the years of mentoring the youths? I mean, so challenges are are, are there. Um, this this field is, is not without challenges. There are many challenges and the challenge for me is and has been the grief of losing kids. 2014 was probably one of the, the greatest um, years of challenges for me because I literally lost three kids to gun violence back-to-back. Between January and mid-February, I was at three funerals of kids that were almost with me daily that I had a close relationship with. And um, and then the fourth kid became paralyzed from gun violence that is still in my life. And um, this is a success story because he's graduating from high school tomorrow, which is really, really <laughs> awesome because that whole gun, um, that gun violence changed the trajectory of his life because he went from <laughs> walking one day to being paralyzed the next day and has been in a wheelchair for the past two years. 
And a lot of people would have said he would have gave up. You know, he was in the hospital for nine months. And, you know, he his dad walked out on him. His mother wasn't very present. He had no family, had no friends. Um, but he did have my support during that entire process. And I'm, I'm very excited to be with him tomorrow as he graduates high school and heads to college. But the challenge has been seeing our kids not be able to get out of the trap. Because some kids, um, and I think I realized that you, you'll definitely win some battles. In, in some battles, you, you, you'll you lose. And I've lost some battles, and, mm-hmm. and, and it's been very hurtful. But that doesn't make me stop because of the challenges. Every battle I lose gives me more perseverance, more dedication, and more reason to continue at it because I can't lose. I can't lose any more on my clock. I can't. Is that how you stay positive? Yeah, I mean that's definitely how I stay positive. Um I I stay positive because I want to see something better. I've seen something so bad that it it gives me the motivation to work hard, to stay positive, to and then I mean you got to be positive in front of these young people because in many ways they are very negative. So if you come in with a negative attitude, that's not going to help them. You have to remain positive in order to be successful in this field overall. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have you been in a situation where your life is threatened by the tug of war between you and, say, a gang that won the same youth? Yeah. Wait, I'm sorry. Have I been challenged a, a gang that want the same youth? I will say yeah. yes, yes, on some level, because one of the young men that was killed um, on February um, 3rd of 2014, he was actually trying to get out of the gang, and they would not allow him. So he was actually shot because shot directly in his head because I was pulling him towards his destiny and um and they wouldn't allow him to do that and he made mm-hmm. the decision to to get out but they they mm-hmm. didn't let him get out they rather kill mm-hmm. him and yeah so absolutely mm-hmm. How do you measure success in what you do I measure success based upon our young people changing slowly so I look at I look at small successes and this is what I always tell people that work with me. You got to look at the small successes. So if a young person was going to school once a week or not going to school at all and now they're going two and three times a week, that's success. If they were getting all Fs and now they're getting all Ds, that's success. Because success comes in increments. It it, it comes in, in time. So if they can move from an F to a D, they can also move from a D to a C, from a C to an A, and it just takes time, and you have to stick with it. You can't expect success, like I said earlier, overnight. When it happens, it's a miracle, and we love it, but it cannot be expected overnight because then you don't have realistic goals for the kid or for yourself. If you don't have realistic goals, goals for the kid, they'll give up because you gave up. And if you don't have realistic goals for yourselves, you'll be disappointed in them and you'll show it. And that's when mm-hmm. that expectation and that intervention becomes so key because if you show them your disappointment, then you change your intervention strategies and it's no longer effective. So true. So true. Yeah. 
Do you have any of the youth that you have helped? And you mentioned the fact that you've been doing this for 10 years now, so obviously they are obviously beyond young adults, and they have pretty much become parents in their own ways and so forth. How many of them have really come back besides just giving you the accolades of great job, thank you for being there, join hand-in-hand with you in your course in helping others? Yeah, so I have a few now, actually, which is cool. Um, Because I've been a little bit all over the place, I started in Atlantic County, and then I moved to Camden County and now Essex County. Those young people that are in the community that I am in now have actually, Mm -hmm. three of them have stepped up and said, you know, I I see what you're doing. You've been doing this for me for many years, and I want to help you because if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't be here, and I need to now send the elevator back down pretty much. So I have a couple people that are in my meetings, and they have the best ideals because they've been there, and they (laughs) know how to reach their generation. They know know how they were reached and how things have changed over the years, too. So I love to get wisdom from them because they have wisdom. I love to get their insight, and I love to have them work with me, you know, right by my side because they have an incredible passion because they know that it works. And I think they know that it works even better than me or you or or the community because Mm -hmm. they know how they were affected better than anybody else. Precisely. The best generals are usually the ones that was an infantryman before. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You go through something, you come out better because of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What would you like for the readers to gain from reading painting pictures? I would like for them to gain a passion to want to change the lives of young people. I want them to become on fire, to to want to see change. Because a lot of times, we always talk about what's going on in the community. We we all talk about it, I think, at some level. We see it on the news. We read about it. But how often do we do something about it? So I want them to gain a passion, but I want them to also take action. So mm-hmm. when that happens, I believe that my goal in writing the book will be accomplished because if they take action, I take action, you take action, something is bound to happen in our communities. And in our world, we'll never be the same again. What is the greatest challenge for people that sitting on the sideline that are cheering you, okay? Because you've got to have cheerleaders that say, hey, you do the job and we're right here, we're, we're with you, we're clapping for you and so forth. But what is the greatest challenge for them to really dive in into the pool, so to speak? I think a lot of people feel um, intimidated, as I did. And, mm-hmm. you know, coming into this field, I talked about how I feel, felt intimidated because I don't have the same stories as these young people. And a lot of people mm-hmm. feel the same way, like they're not going to accept me. They don't, mm-hmm. you know, they don't think I understand them. I, I may look different and all of the above, but understanding that my method of success is not because I have the same stories as them, but it's because I have a genuine love for them, and that's what they pick up on. 
and for a long time I tried to be someone else and and look different in order to relate. And then I realized that it's really just about my persistence, my concern, and they'll try you. They will try you to see if you are consistent, if you are going to stick with them. And once they find out that you are the real deal, they will they will try their best not to disappoint you. That's one thing we'll learn about our young people. When you are committed to them, they'll become committed to you. Sure, they'll make mistakes, and, and, and there'll be some days that you wish they would not have made those decisions. And because right. they know you love them the way you do, they also wish they did not make that decision because they look up to you and they respect you. So if you can get the kid to the place where they respect you on such a level that they don't do the things they used to do because they don't want to hurt you, that's when you're you're doing a good job. Very interesting. Where can someone go to buy your book, get more information about you, and keep up with your work? Yeah, absolutely. So my book is sold um, everywhere. Books are sold, Amazon, Barnes & Nobles. You can go directly on my website, org as well as um, that's where you can get information of what I'm doing in the community. There's some really um, some really big things on the horizon where I'll be going throughout the country and doing some things with our young people in various cities and putting murals up in, in various inner-city communities. So it's, it's, it's going to be big, and um, I definitely want people to follow me, PaintingPicturesInc.org. Are there a lot of other people that does the same thing that you do out there? Sure. I mean, there are a lot of youth organizations, and, and there there mm-hmm. is a great need for a lot of youth organizations. But um, I want to say that what makes me unique is that mm-hmm. I strive to expose kids, not just talk to them, not just preach to them, but expose them. I think exposure is the greatest key, thus painting pictures. So I can't paint pictures if I don't show you new geographic locations, if I don't introduce you to new people, if I don't show you something that you've never seen before because we are visual people. So if I'm not showing you stuff, I'm not painting pictures. So so that's what makes me unique, and that's what my vision is, to show young people, to expose them to environments, people, and things that they have never, ever seen before. And now they will want that for themselves, want that for the generation that comes after them, because exposure will change the way a person thinks. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. So true. Do you have the statistics in terms of the success rate in the 10 years that you've been involved with what you do? So I don't have the statistics over the 10 years because they've been in various places and sure. um, in, in, in various communities and with various organizations. So I don't have that yet. But I will say I won more than I've lost. Mm-hmm. But I also will say that the losses hurt more and, and, and they feel greater but I, I have mm-hmm. one more. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Please tell us about your work with the Future Scholars Program. Yeah, absolutely. So I work with Rutgers Future Scholars, which is a five-year pre-college program. 
And that program starts with young people as rising 8th graders until their 12th grade year. And for me, that program provides a, a proactive stance on helping our young people. What I do with painting pictures is, is very reactive. I, um, I work with young people that have delinquent behaviors and disruptive behaviors. But with Rutgers Future Scholars, many times these are the same kids in inner city communities that honestly have um, some of the same potential to go down some of the same destructive paths because of their environment, but this program allows them to have hope and opportunity that isn't offered to many young people in inner city communities. So they're with us for um, for the academic year every other Saturday and throughout the whole summer, so I'm getting ready for um, having a, a bunch of kids, 250 kids with me throughout the summer, and what we do is make sure that they are advanced in their academic um, knowledge and then it also provides exposure. So we we take them on trips in to DC and to different amusement parks and to the the things that they need to see college tours because again exposure is key. So a lot of these young people you would think that they've been to an amusement park, but they haven't because our communities, our environments often don't allow us the chance to be a kid because responsibilities right. and taking care of siblings and everything else really comes into the picture when you're in the inner city. So this mm-hmm. program does allow our young people new experiences and, and an opportunity to excel in their schools because also, like I said earlier, the inner city communities don't provide many times quality education, quality teachers. So we become that supplemental education that ensures that our young people are getting what they need regardless of sometimes what they don't get at school. Very interesting. What kind of response have you been getting from perhaps parents and certainly caretakers for these youths? Some are very happy that I have come into the life of their kid. Some are are just like, you know, continue with him. Some mm-hmm. some will oftentimes dog the kid and I and I hate when parents dog the kid in front of the kid because that doesn't mm-hmm. give them a, a very positive sense of even the small achievements mm-hmm. or the small um, growth that they have. Because I, I feel like every kid grows, you know, like right. even if it's like you, even if you have to look at it very hard. So I, I don't believe in dogging a kid. And then there are some parents that don't want you to be part of it. They, I've had a situation I talk about in the book where it was this kid, he was part of my program and his time was actually done. And he had, he, he was ready to move on, but he kept coming to group. And to me, that that was, like, incredible that you are actually literally done with the time period that has been required of you, and you continue to come. That's phenomenal. I'm not going to send you home. And so eventually um, he he stopped coming, and I reached out and, and wondered why. And his mom was very um, aggressive, and she was like, we don't need you. We, we're good. And And that's <laughs> when you realize yeah. that there are some parents that are not desiring – the help because they don't yeah. want people to quote unquote be in their business. But, but yeah. our kids, the kids of the community are our business regardless of who their biological parents are. So if we can get into the mindset that it takes a village to raise a child, that's when, yeah. that's when things can really happen for our kids. Very interesting. That's true though. Yeah. What is next for you? What's next for What me? is next for you? Yes. Uh, um, 
really just spreading the word. Uh, what I what I really just desire to do is to to go into the schools, to to do the assemblies that I'm doing, to to do the graduations. I'm excited that the next two weeks I'm speaking at various graduations throughout the states, mm-hmm. and 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 just spread the word, encourage our young people, write more books. Um, I have a workbook coming out this fall that's going to be geared mm-hmm. toward detention centers and, and organizations with youth. So just keep doing the work of impacting the people that do the work for our young people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I can't do it alone. So we need more soldiers <laughs> out there. <laughs> so true. So true. Yeah, yeah. How are you funded? I am funded by Corey James. No. <laughs> so, <laughs> so for the most part, um, you know, I, I definitely fund this because I, I believe in it, right? Um, but I do have people that will, you know, provide donations here and there. I'm looking to move mm-hmm. into a mode where I can be able to get grants and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. at this point, it's it's me um, using my check <laughs> to make sure mm-hmm. this happens because I believe in this mission just that strongly. I understand. By the way, we're coming close to the end of the hour. Since our show is about people, family, and living life, which is right up your alley, would you like to share a recipe for living with our listeners this morning? I believe that a great recipe for living is giving back. A lot mm-hmm. of times we concentrate on ourselves. We live a very selfish life because we are the generation that is oftentimes consumed with ourselves. But I mm-hmm. believe that the greatest recipe is when we give back, when we outreach. I believe that's the greatest recipe, the greatest feeling that one could ever have when they know that because of them, someone was changed, someone became better, someone became more successful. So giving back, sending the elevator back down, paying it forward, that's the recipe for life. Wonderful. That's an excellent recipe for living. And most importantly, it's not about money, it's not about time, it's about something that's coming from the heart, and if you're authentic about it, and you're humble about it, and you speak from the heart, then you'll be surprised at that particular action and how it impacted others. And one of the most interesting things about what you and I just talked about, I think, this whole hour, in looking at individuals that you have impacted to you, and I'm using this as a sort of a, a representation of the magnitude. A penny to you might be a thousand dollars to somebody. Yeah. And sometimes we forget that we we think that we got to give a thousand dollars to mean a thousand dollars, but sometimes that's not what it's all about because it is just the sheer magnitude, the ripple effect that has on the situation. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a domino effect. If if we do our job, if we do our duty, we will impact generations and the world to come. Fantastic. Well, Corey, thank you for the wonderful recipe for living again and for spending this hour with me on From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. To all our listeners, please join me next Tuesday morning. My guest will be Amy Newmark, the publisher and editor-in-chief for Chicken Soup for the Amy is back to talk about their wonderful book in preparing for the upcoming 4th of July weekend, 
we will be discussing their latest release, Chicken Soup for the Soul, The Spirit of America, 101 personal true stories about the good old USA. For additional information about this show and future shows, please go to fmmktalkradio.com. Thank you for listening, and have a blessed week. Corey, it has been a true pleasure. Thank you again, and have a blessed day, sir. Thanks for having me. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.